Champagne. Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Come on, you gotta love champagne. But while it's trendy in some circles to focus solely on the hot grower champagnes, it's important to remember the significance that the big houses play. Recently, I was fortunate enough to meet with Elise Losfeld of Moet and Chandon. Losfeld is one of three women on the 10-member winemaking team of this prestigious house. We met to talk about and taste rosé champagnes. While rosé has been the big wine trend over the past few years, it's my opinion that pink bubbles will be the next hot wine. And when you hear my interview with this passionate, intelligent, and charming winemaker, I'm sure you'll agree. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Foodeter.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Foodeter.com. Elise, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're the third generation of female winemakers in your family, but your family actually goes back further in winemaking than that, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's more like vine growing before winemaking. It's like handling the, the, the terroir, like the soil, etc. The vigneron, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So we have a different term in the United States than you have in France for, you know, we say winemaker. Uh, yeah. Okay. T- talk to me a little bit about the difference between the Americans' idea of a winemaker and what the idea of a winemaker is in France. Well, I don't know really what's the Americans' idea of a winemaker, but a uh, winemaker is really someone who's going to transform the juice of the, of the grapes into, into a wine or into a champagne or something like that. Um, and then we have different terms in France, which is enologist, is someone who learned about all the chemistry and the physics behind winemaking. And then you have viticulteur, viticulturists, who's a person who's going to have some land and has, who's going to be able to transform it into a wine. So there are some little differences. And the, the, the idea of a vigneron is like the keeper of the vines. Exactly. So it's vineyard grower, vineyard owner, and then after vine, winemaker. So it's viticulteur. Um, and actually, I'm, uh, my mother and my grandmother, well, my mother is a viticultrice. What? So she, we own land and she's transforming it into a wine, which is coming from her own, own land. And my grandmother used to rule the world in the, in the family property. So she, she used to be a viticultrice also. And where in France is that? It's uh, south of France, near Montpellier. So the, um, the, the region uh, is called Languedoc. And, you know, we have, uh, we call uh, different uh, places, different regions with uh, different names to, to say where the wine comes from. So it's Languedoc, and then smaller port is Gré de Montpellier, and even smaller, the Cru, is called Saint-Georges-d'Or. How did you get from Languedoc, way south, yeah. to Champagne? <laughs> Languedoc and the history of my family is super good for... The fact that I, I know where I'm coming from and I know that I wanted to be a winemaker since I'm like three years old. I already wanted to be a winemaker. And then, you know, uh, you have to go your own way. Uh, my mother is in charge of the family property and I had the huge chance to go and work for Moite Chandon in the Champagne. And I mean, when you have a chance like that, you, you don't turn your back on it. And you go and you enjoy it. And it's been four beautiful years. I've been working in the winemaking team. It's, uh, it's really a great experience. It's really a great work to did, be there. Did you study viticulture somewhere? Yeah, I studied viticulture in, in Montpellier and in Bordeaux. And I've worked actually a little bit in Bordeaux and in Australia. 
and in Spain. So, and you're part of the winemaking team at Moet and Chandon? Yeah, and uh, so we are 10 winemakers. Uh, there's one Salamaster, so it's one Salamaster and nine winemakers around him. And I've been part of the winemaking team since I've arrived. Now, as part of the winemaking team, do you have specific wines that you're responsible for, or does the entire team work together on all the wines? So it's the entire team works together for all the cuvées, and then we'll be uh, more uh, specialist of some parts of the process. So we'll be taking care of Benoit Guest, uh, the Salamaster. He's going to like direct everything, and the winemakers, uh, we're going to be more specialist of some parts of the process, like disgorgement, like uh, bottling, like fermentation, first fermentation, second fermentation, etc. And what is your speciality in that, in that group? So I've just, uh, I've just changed work. My uh, title is uh, Head of Vinification. So I'm really responsible for everything that's the first fermentation. I'm not the only one being responsible for it, but uh, I'm starting to have the, some responsibilities. And uh, also I'll be one of the winemakers that you want to call if there is something about disgorgement. So I'll be handling both of these things. So you're primarily making all of the still wines for all of the cuvées at Moet? Yes. What was the first wine you made? Ah, I, you wanted to be a winemaker when you were three. What was the first wine you ever made? Oh, that's a good question. What's the first wine I've ever made? Alors, the first uh, winemaking experience that I had was during my studies, and I went uh, the summer between the two years uh, to study winemaking. I went in Mallorca. The first wine that I've made was a wine from Mallorca. Or I participated into making it because I was not, I was an assistant winemaker. I was not a winemaker. When you were growing up and your mother and grandmother were making their wines uh, in Montpellier, uh, did, you, did you help around the winery and the vineyards? So a little bit, I helped a little bit in the vineyards, but then, uh, you know, harvest is just when school starts, so, so it's a little bit complicated right. to go and help in the winery at this moment. What is it about champagne? I mean, why, 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 why did you go, I mean, you probably had the opportunity to, after studying in, in, in Bordeaux to just go just about anywhere in the world to make wine. What took you to champagne? Champagne is a magic beverage. I mean, it's a, it's an, and for a winemaker, it's a super, uh, it's an amazing thing to be able to handle all the champagne making because there's winemaking and then there's champagne transformation. And it's like, uh, for a winemaker, it's superb to be able to do these kind of technical things. Uh, the tasting of champagne is, uh, has really developed a lot my palate, um, um, not only aromas but texture-wise, etc. Tasting of base wine is super complicated, so when you start tasting base wines, it's really like you, you, you get really focused and you really improve your tasting abilities. So I wanted to do all of that to create a magic, like a magic beverage. When people hear the pop of the cork, it's just like, ooh! Champagne! So that's beautiful to be able to do something like that. And technically, for a winemaker, it's really, it gets you really to improve yourself to make some champagne. You know, making champagne obviously is far more technical than making a still wine. Um, It's it's just like the, the, honestly, the the fact that we have a second fermentation makes that it's going to be technical all year long. 
Uh, but making a red wine is super technical. I mean, making a good red wine needs a lot of knowledge and know-how and experience. So I won't say I won't say that making a red wine is easier than making a champagne. I will never say no, that. No, no, no. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair <laughs> enough. When you're making your still wines, is it different making still wine for that will become champagne than making a still wine that will remain still? Yeah. How? When we're making still wines uh, for champagne, we want wines that are not opened yet. We, we, are, we want wines that will be able to open after a second fermentation. So there is something about the still wines in champagne that when you taste them, they're not ready to be drunk. If they are ready to be drunk, when you taste them and when you're making the blend of your champagne, you know that your champagne will have a problem. For the Rosé Imperial, for example, which is a non-vintage champagne, we keep it the maturation on the lease lasts 21 months. You have to leave uh, your champagne be during 21 months, so it has to be able to evolve. If it's already completely open as a wine, it will never be good as a champagne. So the base wines are not wines that you want to taste because they're too acidic, they're closed, and when we taste them, we think about their potential. And we don't think about how do they taste now. We think about how will they taste as a champagne. So it's really different because when you're making a steel wine, of course, you think about how will it be when it's going to be bottled, but you don't think about how will it be if it has another step, another fermentation on it. And you know the maturation on the lees will add a lot of aromas and a lot of complexity in the champagne. It has, you have to be some space in your wine to let it come. So it doesn't need to be too, it's fruity, but it has some space to gain the maturation or like aromas on it. You know, working at a, one of the, well, clearly one of the most uh, important champagne houses, Moet and Chandon has its house style in yes. making champagne. Do you feel that when you're working, making wines that must meet a house style, that it, it, handcuffs you as a, as a winemaker? It, it doesn't allow you to do some things maybe you'd like to do because you have to meet this house style? Alors, yes, for the non-vintage, of course, there's a, there's a house style. There's an aim. Uh, all the winemakers, we are different, we taste differently, etc. But we all have the same aim in our head. So we know where we are aiming when it comes to non-vintage. But we have vintage champagnes also. And the vintage champagne, our philosophy around it, or the philosophy of Benoit Guez, is that... We want to showcase, when we make a vintage champagne, we want to showcase one particular harvest. So we use it to express something different than what we have in the non-vintage. Let's put it that way. Non-vintage champagne, making, creating a non-vintage champagne year after year, is super challenging. It's the most biggest challenge that we face as winemakers. But it's not handcuffing. It's still creation. So it's still like, you still create something. Because every harvest is so different that all the base wines that you, elab that you make with one harvest are so different that every year you reinvent it. You reinvent the, the new, the new non-vintage, which is supposed to be exactly the same experience as the one before. So it doesn't seem like we are closed in a golden prison. It's really like we are recreating year after year. But we know what we are aiming for. And if there's a really outstanding year that has a really strong personality that we feel when we taste all the base wines, by the way, Moet et Chandon, it's 800 base wines per year that we, that we make. So 800 it's huge. base wines yeah. per year. It's You're busy. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a huge diversity, and that's uh, superb to create the non-vintage, having a lot of diversity. That's perfect. And also, so when we taste them all, we, we know that 
we understand the personality of the year. And Benoit, he knows which year he's going to make as a vintage when he tastes all the base wine. And he's and the chef de cave. He's the chef de cave, yes. He's the cellar master, the head winemaker, my boss. <laughs> so, and he's the one who's going to say, okay, we're making a vintage, and I want to make it this way. I want to show the personality of this year, like 2008, the vintage that's coming. He wanted to show that it was mature in aromas, but had a high acidity in the base wines that we were tasting. So he's going to showcase that in the champagne. Whereas in 2006, it was a supple, generous, really fluent, like easy to drink base wines as a potential base wine, like a potential champagne. So he showed it in his 2006. It was like wide and supple and generous. So every time you have a ground vintage, you have a different experience. And it's the same in our site. Every time we're making a ground vintage, we have a different experience. So that's how we express what can be the artistic part of, of winemakers. But you have to understand that the main artistic capacities, we use it for, for the non-vintage taste uh, making. So it's, well, I don't know if it makes sense. Does it sure, make sure. sense? Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more about some of the technical things of making rosé champagne in a moment. But what I, um, I, I really need to know, and I want to ask you, it, was it hard for you? Is it hard for you being a female winemaker in what's traditionally a very male-dominated world, particularly champagne? You know, it's... In the U.S., we call that a boys' club, you know, men being men. And now here comes this woman from the south of France. Is it difficult for you at all? Um, no. No challenges? No. <laughs> I mean, I have challenges, of course, and I'm, uh, I'm not someone who doesn't like to face them. So I love challenges. So when, when, you, when you understand my personality, of course, Benoit puts me a lot of challenges in front of me. But it's more because he wants me to grow up. Uh, as a winemaker, but not taking care about the fact that I'm a female or a male. In the team of the winemakers, there are three women over ten winemakers. So maybe also it's that that makes it easy. I mean, there's no... I don't feel any difference. I mean, I've never been a man, so I don't know if I'm having something. But, <laughs> fair enough, but fair enough. I don't see any difference. And today we're going to taste some uh, rosé champagnes, yeah? Yeah. I know there's a couple different methods of making rosé champagnes. Talk me, talk me through the, what, what those two methods are yeah. and how, how, how they're used at Maud and Chanel. Okay. There are two, me two methods. There is the blend rosé and there is the rosé de saignée. Um, the blend rosé is the, is the one that is the most used in the Champagne region. And there are a few uh, houses and winemakers who are going to use rosé de saignée. Uh, we use blend rosé. So it means that we make... Uh, white base wine, so the 800 were base wines, and we make red base wines. The red base wines, we're going to make them out of Meunier, Pinot Meunier, and out of Pinot Noir, which are two red grapes that we have in the Champagne region. So you make a red wine as if you were making classically Burgundy-style red wine. So with extraction, with pigeage, so um, pumping overs and stuff mm -hmm. like that, to extract all the tannins and all the color that you have in the, in the, in the skin. And this happens during the fermentation, so it helps to obtain the color. So that's, and once we have finished the fermentation, we will extract the juice from the tank, and the juice will be red. So that's a red wine. For the rosé de saigné, uh, it's a different way to do it. So you put your grapes as if you were going to make a red wine, but in the middle of the fermentation, or 
it depends on the color that you have on the grapes. Well, let's say in the first half of the fermentation you're going to take, it has, the tannins and the color has started to infuse in the juice. At this moment, you take the juice out. I mean, saigner, the word saigner in French means to blood. So to take the blood out. So saigner means we take the juice out. It's much like making tank. a rosé still wine. A lot of rosé still wine are made like that. Or you have also rosé de presse. Rosé de presse. Uh, but this you can do it only in the south of France because you have enough color and it goes directly in your juice. Mm-hmm. So rosé de saignée, it's uh, some a few houses do use it in the in the Champagne region. But, but, for but not us, at Moet. Not at Moet. No, we make red wines. We like to separate uh, white wine making and red wine making because it, it's really two different uh, mindsets. And we like to go till the end in our red wine making so we can extract everything that we are looking for, all the aromas, and we can really work on the evolution of the aromatics during the fermentation with the skins. So for us, that's a good way to control how our red wines will taste like, red base wines. And then also when we do the blend, we know, look, you know, we have different red base wines, and so we can like really, again, with the diversity of the white wines and the red wines, recreate the consistency of the non-vintage or create the personality of the ground vintage. So for us, it's a, the best way to be able to have consistency in quality and in style for the non-vintage. Let's taste some wine. Let's taste it. So what are we going to start with here? Alors, uh, we're going to taste together today uh, only rosé champagne. Only rosé. Rosé is a huge thing right now, and... I think we, we're going to start seeing it move over to sparkling rosé. I mean, rosé yeah. here now, you know, it was a few years ago, it was uh, rosé in the summer. Everyone wants rosé in the summer, rosé yeah, in the summer. Yeah, yeah. It, Americans went through this thing where rosé was looked down upon because, you know, bad, cheap, sweet white Zinfandel from California yeah. started in the 70s. And when people realized how awful it was, stopped drinking rosé. Well, now there's this renaissance in rosé. And it, it started with... Um, simply rosé in the summertime. Now it's rosé year-round. Everyone's rosé all year-round. Now you can drink rosé. It's yeah. a terrific wine to drink. And now we're seeing, oh, sparkling rosé. And for me, that's great because I, I like the little bit of texture mm-hmm. that, oops, oh, you know, yeah. we'll open it up. <laughs> um, love that sound. I, I, I love the texture and the body that, that, yeah. that the rosé adds to as opposed to a blanc blanc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So let's talk about the first wine. What is this? So the first wine is a uh, is oh just I wanted to say to oh, you sure. you know the the oldest rosé champagne that we have at Moët et Chandon and it's the oldest that was ever found in the Champagne region. It's a bottle of 1878. So rosé is not new. Huh? <laughs> By <laughs> no means. Super old. <laughs> sure. Uh, and we still have one bottle. So even rosé champagne was uh, was already made by by this time. 1878. Mm-hmm. So the first rosé champagne that we're drinking is rosé imperial. So it's the flagship of uh, Moëté Chandon when it comes to rosé champagne. It's the non-vintage uh, of, of Moëté Chandon in rosé. As a non-vintage, it expresses completely the style of the house Moëté Chandon. So what we want to express is an idea of a bright fruitiness, like fruits are present in the, in the, in the array of aromas and they're super fresh fruits. It's not like they're not candied, they're not transformed into a marmalade or nothing like that. Then we really want to have your way of talking about the texture. So we, want, we really are looking for something that's called a seductive palate. It means that when you drink your champagne, you enjoy it. Rosé Imperial is really a champagne that we want to be enjoyable straight away. It's not a mental champagne. It's really a champagne that's easy to be drunk. Mm-hmm. 
So seductive palette, it means uh, for the rosé texture, generosity of the bubble, presence in the palette, but also you feel a little bit the tannins. So in average, you have 20% of red wines in this one. So you feel the tannins and the bitterness of the tannins that are here. Mm -hmm. And we want to have that. Because Rosé Imperial is not only an aperitif champagne, but also a champagne that you would lo love to pair with food. Like, you can start with it, and you can, till the beginning of the dessert, you can continue Oh, yeah, for champagne is the perfect food wine. I mean, yeah. it's, we don't see enough champagne being drunk throughout the meal. This is 21 months on the lease. 21 months on the lease, mm -hmm. yes. And then that balances off a little bit of that bitterness uh, from the yeah. tannin. Oh, you know, when, um, that's, that's fun because, well, when we, when the maturation on the lease goes, of course we try the champagnes uh, to verify how it's going and how it's evolving. And there are some moments on the maturation on the lease where you have a bitterness that's super high and then the softness comes back. So it's really uh, changing and moving like waves of bitterness. So we really uh, decided that 21 months was the, but it's in average 21 months, of course. So it's like 21 months is the best moment to have the, the balance between the mellowness that you can have with the lees and the bitterness that we still want to have in the champagne. It has to be present. It's not, it's not a rosé champagne that you will drink and if you drink it in a dark glass, you're just like, oh, I don't know if it's a rosé champagne, but I guess it's a rosé champagne. This one is like, you're sure when you're drinking it that it's a rosé champagne. You have the presence of the red wines that are there. Mm -hmm. You have the presence of the red fruit aromas that are there. For sure, yeah, and strawberry. The, and yeah, exactly. And a little bit of spices also. Yep, yeah, nice. herbs, definitely. Mm -hmm. And what, what's... What are the great varieties in here? Pinot Noir, Meunier, and Chardonnay. Just the three. Whatever happens, Mouette et Chandon, we are blenders. Our right. job as winemaker is to blend. And we, call it, we talk about the art of blending. So every champagne at Mouette et Chandon will be a blend of the different varietals. Well, I'm not talking about the old, old champagnes. Right, 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 right. But of course, the last 30 years, every champagne is a blend of the three varietals. So you don't make a blanc de blanc? No. Okay. You know, there's a, I love this joke, or maybe it's French humor, but I still love it. It's a joke that Benoit makes. He says, I love Blanc de Blanc. I love it. But I think it lacks a little bit of Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a nice joke. Yeah, I, I, I like yeah it. that is a good joke. <laughs> I once heard a, uh, a, a winemaker from Champagne say, they were asking about, you know, uh, making wines in Burgundy and says it's a shame that they take that beautiful fruit and make Burgundy instead of Champagne with it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that also. Great, so what's next? Next Champagne is Grand Vintage Rosé 08. So it's, um, it's super new. It's our newest vintage. We're moving from Vintage 2006 to Vintage 2008. And the first uh, 2008 that you're going to have in the United States, it's the Rosé. What, what an elegant color. So when it comes to Grand Vintage, I told you um, just earlier, when we're making a Grand Vintage, when Benoit decides to make a Grand Vintage, he wants to, first he selects the year, so there's not a Grand Vintage every year. We want to select the most outstanding and uh, strongest personality uh, vintages. So I ran into some technical difficulties with the end of this tasting and I failed to record. Elise and I went on to taste the newly released Grand Vintage 2008 Rosé, as well as the Grand Vintage 98 and 88 Rosés. Tasting these wines at 8, 
18, and 28 years old shows not only the amazing aging potential of rosé champagnes from Moet and Chandon, but it gave me an exciting look at how these wines evolve over time. The 98 was a pale salmon color with dried berry notes and a good hit of chalky minerality and creaminess. The 88 was a deeper amber color with flavors of dried stone fruit, fig, vanilla, and a bit of clove. Regardless of the wines, it was a pleasure to meet with Elise Losfeldt. I'm sure you'd agree that she was a fantastic, informative, and charming guest. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 